Today's episode contains depictions of violence and murder against Indigenous people. We ask that you use your best judgment before listening. If you are an Indigenous person, please consider a form of self-care after listening. Thank you. The Osage were one of many Great Plains tribes forced to relocate and give up their homelands with the encroachment of white settlers moving further and further west during the 19th century, unjustly claiming rights to lands that was not and is still not theirs today. Eventually, they were forced to move to Indian Territory, a.k.a. Oklahoma. This move would change the history of the Osage people forever. You see, beneath their lands in Oklahoma was oil and lots of it. This would make the Osage some of the richest people in the entire country and the most targeted. This is the Red Justice Project. Hometown hero, lost a life. As Chelsea mentioned, today we're going to be discussing the Osage Nation and a period known as the Reign of Terror for the Osage people. This is going to be a two-part episode, but before we get into the details of the criminal acts committed against the tribe, we want to discuss some of the historical background so you have more context during our first episode. And another thing to remember throughout this episode is that the Osage people had made several treaties with the U.S. government, each one being broken by the U.S. government, and each one forcing the Osage to give up more of their tribal lands in Kansas and beyond until they were essentially left to purchase the land that they presently own in Oklahoma. But we should also note that, you know, if you follow U.S. and indigenous history, the United States government has broken pretty much 100 percent of the treaties they created with Native nations. Facts, like literally every single treaty broken in some way. So in the late 19th century, oil was discovered on Osage land that they had purchased for a reservation. And with that discovery, that meant that the tribe would be entitled to royalties for any oil drilled since they own the mineral rights to their land. And Chelsea, do you want to give a little bit of background on how they had those rights? Sure. So the Osage were one of the only tribes in Oklahoma to actually purchase their reservation land, as Brittany mentioned. So they actually took the proceeds from giving up their land in Kansas um, from the federal government to purchase about one and a half million acres in northern Oklahoma. And, you know, once they were forced to enter that area known as Indian Indian Territory around 1870. 
And during those first years on their new reservation, the Osage people suffered greatly. The reservation land was totally unfit for large subsistence farming that they needed to sustain the Osage population. And the government, the United States government, refused to pay the full cash annuity that they owed to the Osage people in the form of rations, goods, and medical supplies for giving up their previous homelands. Again, a bunch of treaty breakers, as usual. And the population of the Osage actually declined by about 50% during this time. And this is not a, not a very long time period. But something that I truly admire about the Osage is that they did their very best to play a white man's game for the continuation of their tribe. Yep, they definitely did. So in 1879, tired of the mistreatment, they actually went to D.C. and advocated for their tribe to receive their full allotment. And they became the first indigenous nation in the area to gain the full cash payment of annuities that was owed to them. Although they still had, you know, to deal with things like land encroachment from white settlers and the terrain of their new homelands, um, which we mentioned was not good for large scale agriculture. And they even wrote their own Osage Nation constitution that mirrored much of the U.S. Constitution, which I thought was an interesting tactic to ensure the survival of the Osage Nation, especially at a time where there was a huge push by the federal government for assimilation through things like the Dawes Act, which pretty much broke up communal land on reservations and gave allotments to individual Native families and ended up forcing Native people into the capitalist idea of owning private property and fundamentally changing the relationship nations had with their land and allowing the U.S. government to sell off what they deemed excess land once eligible Native people were given their allotment. And I think it's really important to understand with the Dawes Act is you have this huge plot of, of communal land that all uh, the natives in the tribe were owning and then if you're separating it into individual tracts there's always going to be some left over or that's the way the U.S. government would design it so that there would purposely be you know quote-unquote excess land so that they could end up taking that. Yep and the Dawes Act and the Curtis Act which was similar to the Dawes Act resulted in a total loss of about a hundred million acres of land by native nations in this area And as Brittany mentioned, it really fundamentally changed the way cultural practices of land sharing, of caretaking and cultivation, you know, that were once held by many Native nations held. And you can still see those horrible effects of this um, still today from both of those acts. Hashtag land back, um, something we're still screaming today. But we could spend a whole nother episode talking about the criminal acts of land theft then and even still happening today. So, Brittany, why don't you get us back on topic with the Osage Res land and what was going on there? So the Osage fared a little differently than some of the other tribes since, as we mentioned, they had purchased their land. And while there were still allotments according to the 1906 Osage Allotment Act, the tribal members were afforded much larger tracts of land and the Osage kept their surplus or communal land because, you know, again, they, they purchased this. And the Osage were really good at negotiating with the U.S. government and they maintained uh, communal rights to any minerals found on or beneath the surface of the lands, which they would soon find out would change their nation forever because they did indeed have huge quantities of oil beneath their land. And with this discovery, talks of oil production began and the U.S. government stepped in yet again, as they always do. 
Yep, and again, before we get into details of the oil, um, you're going to hear the word head rights come up a lot. And basically, it was the tribal rights for Osage Nation citizens and was used for voting and to state claims to any royalties paid um, to the tribe. So each Alati or tribal citizen received one equal share or head right. And it was called the head, um, you know, it was called a head right because it could only be passed to a citizen's immediate legal heir. So usually when we think about heirs, we think about our spouses or our kids or maybe our parents. But as we'll see in this story, lots and lots of people tried to become legal heirs uh, to gain head rights from tribal citizens. Yeah, and the communal head rights from mineral resources through the Allotment Act would expire in 1926, according to the 1906 Act. So once the oil was discovered, there was a lot of pressure for white folks to actually try to gain control of Osage land during that 20-year period, so that when the communal claim expired, if they ended up occupying the land, they could actually control the oil production underneath the land that they essentially stole. And during that kind of 20-year period between 1906 and 1926, any Osage citizen with land could sell or lease their surface land to non-Osage people for cattle grazing or any other business ventures. And this proved to be detrimental because many non-Osage people knew that oil had been discovered, and if they could hold onto the land until 1926, they would end up gaining control of the mineral rights underneath it as well. And a lot of white men specifically who moved to the area married Osage women purposely to obtain the head rights that we discussed earlier. Pure thievery, which is another tangent we could go on um, and, you know, get on. So let's backtrack again to the discovery of the oil. Uh, again, there's a lot to cover before we even get into the criminality of everything that was happening during this time. So the oil was discovered in the late 1800s, and the very first oil lease for the Osage tribal land was obtained by, of course, a white man named Henry Foster in 1896 from the U.S. government. The Osage people. Mm-mm, see, I don't trust. I don't trust no man named Henry except one. Wait. And you know no. who that is? Barry. <laughs> Henry Barry okay. Lowry. Yeah, okay. Henry Barry. Okay. I got you. Keep going. Um, okay, so the Osage people didn't really get a say in it, and go figure. So it was a ten-year lease, and the lease ended up being renewed for another ten years. So essentially, for twenty years, this one family, because Henry did die during this time, so his family then took over, controlled the Osage oil production with their company, Indian Territory Illuminating Oil, also known as ITIO. But all that changed in 1916 when the tribe stopped the blanket lease with ITIO. And Britt, do you want to tell them what um, the tribe did next? Sure. So the Osage began selling individual leases to basically the highest bidder, and they would do it under this giant elm tree on their tribal land, which later became known as the Million Dollar Elm. Because with the business dealings and bidding of leases under that giant elm came an increase in royalties and money for the tribe from oil production that was unimaginable at the time. Essentially, the Osage collectively became the richest people per capita in the entire world. Y'all, the richest people per capita in the world. I can't even imagine. Right. It's like after all the struggles of losing your tribal territory and the death of so many in your nation from land loss, disease and colonization. I mean, literally, they lost half of their people to now finally have this happen had to feel surreal. 
Honey, you wouldn't have been able to tell me nothing, okay? I would have had the biggest, everything beaded. My clothes, my eyebrows, everything. Yes, not a thing. I would have been so bougie back then, like, just living my best life. And that's pretty much what a lot of the Osage did. I mean, they enjoyed their newfound wealth. Some traveled to Europe, most owned cars, which you got to remember, this is the early 1900s. Something, you know, at the time, only wealthy white families owned in the U.S. Like, owning a car was an ultimate sign of wealth and luxury. So not only did many Osage families have multiple cars, but they also had chauffeurs with their cars and they lived in really nice, large homes. Overall, they were enjoying the abundance that came with leasing their lands. But, as you can imagine, since this is a true crime podcast, the wealth experienced by the Osage brought out jealousy and corruption for white settlers and even the U.S. government. They can't never just let us be great, huh? No, not even today. And I also think it's just super important to understand the racist news reporting and the racial nuances at the time. So remember, this is still the early 1900s in America, and the overwhelming majority of white people see people of color, including black and native people, as second class. And while slavery had ended maybe about, what, 35, 40 or so years beforehand, black Americans still suffer segregation, separate but equal laws, and no reparations at all for generations of building white wealth in America. Yep. And, you know, this is so true. And the racist environment created by colonization created huge targets on the back of the now very wealthy Osage Nation. The white public became all but transfixed on the way the Osage carried themselves. The media called them red millionaires or rich redskins and ogled at their mansions in the way they dressed in beautiful French clothing designs and how Osage families were sending their children to the best boarding schools at the time. The newspapers were tainted with jealousy, in my opinion, and I can only imagine as an Osage person who had been previously stripped of their homelands and other rights, you know, they were just trying to use their new money to fit into this kind of European-American society that now dominated their world. I mean, European-Americans have been pushing for indigenous people to assimilate, and when the tribe does, you know, they get mad about it, so it's like a lose-lose situation. Right. No matter what you do, they're going to be upset. And for so long, Native people had been unjustly accused of being savages, and the newspaper would take every single chance they got to keep that reputation alive for the Osage. They would report on the way that the Osage would try to keep some of their traditional ways, snarking at them all the time. And one article even talked about how they would create a circle with their expensive cars just to then have an open campfire in the center of it to cook their meat in a primitive style or take small airplanes to their primitive traditional dances. Even white, black, and Mexican people who served as staff for the many rich uh, Native families referred to as Indian potlickers. Yeah, and it's and again, this is in newspapers being reported, and so it's just disgusting how open and blatantly racist the media was at the time, and even still can be. We talk about the media all the time in our podcast, and when we talk about the many cases of missing and murdered Indigenous people, you know, we talk about how little or no media attention that they actually receive, and so it just reminds me of how little has changed in the last 150 years in regards to Indigenous people's relationship to um, to the media. That's so true. And all I can think about when I was reading how the Osage were discussed in the media then was how they did the exact same thing white Americans would have done with their wealth. But because they were native, 
they were still made to seem foolish. You know, like you strip indigenous people of their lands, their languages. You forbid them to practice religious traditions so that they can become a part of white American society and then get mad when they not only use their fortunes to emulate white society, but essentially move up into higher society and live an assimilated lifestyle that was unattainable for probably 99% of white Americans. And as Chelsea mentioned, the Osage began selling individual oil leases in 1916, and their wealth exploded. But within five years, at the peak of Osage opulence, the U.S. government intervened. Yep, our nice, blatantly racist U.S. Congress passed a law in 1921 requiring Osage citizens with half or more ancestry to be appointed a white guardian until they could prove competency for controlling their money made from the royalties of their head rights. And even Osage miners and those with less than half Osage ancestry were also required to have white guardians appointed, even if their parents were living. Y'all, I'm going to repeat this again. The U.S. government legally forced the Osage to have white guardians controlling their money. And it's like when you learn this kind of American history, you want to be shocked. But I just never am really with stuff like this. Same. And I also just get really frustrated that this isn't core learning taught in U.S. history in school. Yeah, that's just so true. And local courts in Oklahoma appointed white businessmen and lawyers to become the guardians for Osage people. The guardians in turn provided allowances, quote unquote, you know, like you're a youngin, to their Osage people that they oversaw. So they didn't have to give them all their royalties by any means. And of course, you, y'all already know how this story is about to go. And guardians and attorneys could collect their guardianship fees directly out of an Osage person's income. So it's just completely ridiculous. And we're talking about thousands of dollars in the early 1900s. There was so much wealth being controlled by white guardians and so much corruption during that time. Yep. And as we mentioned, you can already imagine the target that Osage people had on their backs with their newfound wealth, but the guardianship program took that to a whole new level. So many Osage people were stripped of their allotted lands, of their head rights, and their royalties by their guardians and others who were working with their guardians, so like attorneys and just family members of the guardians. People would stop at nothing to take the Osage's wealth and lands. And when I say nothing, I mean literally nothing, not even murder. And next week, we will continue our story on the powerful Osage Nation and the reign of terror that led to so many murders and even more corruption, the lasting effects of which still are felt today by the Osage people. Source materials and show notes can be found on our website, redjusticepodcast.com. You can follow us on social media at Red Justice Podcast. Thank you again for listening. We appreciate those taking the time to learn about Indigenous true crime stories and how they are part of the foundation of our nation and reverberate throughout our Indigenous communities today. This is the Red Justice Project. The first time we met